Hello, podcast listeners. This is Sam Dyer, your Ortho PAC host. I wanted to let you know about our latest CME event, November the 13th and 14th, uh, Saturday and Sunday in Charlotte. That's this fall. We're calling it the PAOS Orthopedic Bootcamp. This is intended for those new to orthopedics, or if you want to brush up on your orthopedic assessment and clinical knowledge, this course is for you. So a variety of topics, basic musculoskeletal radiographic interpretation, what is an urgent versus an emergent orthopedic case, fracture and dislocation principles, coding and compliance, an exam of everything orthopedic, spine and the extremities, and then to top it off, we're going to teach you how to give injections in the knee and the shoulder. Please register online at www.paos.org CME. Again, it's Saturday and Sunday, November the 13th and 14th, a day and a half, 12 hours of CME. So I hope we see you there. The Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Today's guest is Shawnee Fleming, a PA with a background in family medicine, adolescent medicine, infectious disease, and urgent care. She is currently on faculty of the University of Maryland Grad School PA program and Intercultural Leadership Certificate program. She also represents the faculty of the graduate program in the President's Diversity Advisory Council. She is considered a diversity and inclusion leader throughout many national and state organizations and has reached thousands of underrepresented students promoting diversity, both in education and in faculty. She is currently working on her PhD. This is an abbreviated introduction, but let's just say you know what you're talking about. Welcome, Shani. Absolutely, thank you for inviting me. As a background leading up to today, last year at about this time, I was going with the idea of a podcast. And about that time, the killings of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd happened. I had already reached out to Don Morton Rias to discuss some issues with the NCCPA, and the NCCPA also put out a statement on these acts of violence, racism, and hatred, and also mentioned how the pandemic, for want of a better description, shined a light on health disparities of the disenfranchised and minority communities. Don and I discussed some of these issues in your interview, and I pledge that the PAOS would do more to educate ourselves and our members on these issues and develop action plans. Fast forward to two weeks ago, and we were able to host both you and Dawn at our annual meeting and today where we can have these conversations. Shawnee, thanks for coming on today to discuss these issues. For our listeners who listen to this routinely, they know I write a script, so I did a lot of research on this and, and writing, and honestly, it's something I don't know a lot about. So I'm going to ask some questions, and Shawnee, please tell me if we're going the right direction or if we need to talk about something different or if I'm totally missing the ball here. Can you please tell our listeners what you mean when you say cultural humility in clinical practice? And also, why is cultural diversity and cultural humility important when we talk about health inequities and health disparities? Really important topic. I want to first really start with the goal, right? And I think that ultimately, no matter what your specialty is, if you are practicing medicine, the goal is that we want for our patients to have great optimal health. We want for everybody to walk away in the best shape possible. And that's where sort of health equity comes in. Everybody should be able to achieve 
ultimate excellent health. And in order to do that, we have to tackle this thing called health disparities. At the very basic level, health disparities mean for unjust reasons, there are differences in health outcomes. And when you're looking at those differences, we have to sort of do some assessment of ourselves, of the system at large, and and, and to a certain extent of our patients, but more so really looking at ourselves and how we're delivering healthcare how our system is set up to really provide certain services for some and maybe not others, and really sort of critique that system. And so that's where this notion of cultural humility comes in, right? So it's the ability to really critique ourselves, to do a self-evaluation of what's happening within our society as it relates to health outcomes. And this is a lifelong commitment. And many of your listeners, as we were training, we learned a lot about cultural competence, right? So having knowledge, skills, attitudes, working with folks from different cultures. But what cultural humility really focuses on is really this commitment to looking inward and what are we doing? And, you know, you sort of mentioned that you didn't really know a lot about the topic, but that took some self-reflection, right? We have to take a moment and reflect on where we are, what can we do, really do some strong critique of ourselves and our system, and how we can move forward so that all of our patients can achieve that ultimate goal of health. You know, it's so important. I was so happy to attend your class and, and learn some stuff, and it makes me realize how much I don't know, which is always a good thing. In your presentation in Nashville, you identified some studies, and there were a lot. If you're at the meeting, you can see in Johnny's reference list, pretty much every elective area in orthopedic surgery, they showed or they demonstrated healthcare disparities related to race and related to socioeconomic status. I was hoping you might share some examples with our listeners of why this is important, some examples of how this happens, and maybe what we can do about it. I have in front of me just sort of a list and I can give you just a couple of examples. Some of the examples that I shared during the presentation were that there are some differences as it relates to access to just care due to insurance. So when we're looking at even getting appointment times, right? So for your patients with rotator cuff injuries, if you have private insurance, you are 8.8 times more likely to be able to get an appointment versus a patient with Medicaid. When you are looking at a knee arthroplasty, if you have Medicaid, 30.1% of the time you'll get an appointment versus 100% of the time if you have private insurance. So this is access to care based off of insurance, right? And looking at something specific as it relates to, so who receives replacement? And this is something I was fascinated to see has been pretty consistent over the years as it relates to the rate of folks who are receiving total joint replacement. There's a 4.82% white men, 3.46% Hispanic men, and 1.84% out of 1,000, sorry, this is, these are the rates out of 1,000 Black men. So a huge difference, right? So 1.84 out of every 1,000 Black men receiving total joint versus 4.82 of white men. I would throw that question right back to you as far as why, what, what's at the root of it, right? I think that it's a multifaceted issue. But when we're looking at access as far as why in certain insurances are not able to access appointments, reimbursement rates for different insurances, what's the mission of your organization? Are, are there opportunities for compassion sort of care? Really looking critically is bias. You know, bias shows up. 
are there differences as it relates to recommendations for different procedures? So these are, I think that's where we talk about cultural humility is really doing some self-reflection and critiquing, looking at where are the health disparities in your practice and answering questions. Why is this showing up this way? What can I do from my position of influence to really make an impact to decrease this gap? Absolutely, I agree 100%. All of this, I believe, wholeheartedly is true. I can tell you in orthopedic surgery, and I hate to say it, but it's true, money is a big motivator. So you're absolutely right. I think the implicit bias, but I think money is an issue too when you talk about insurers. And it's just the nature of it, you know? I hate it, I really do, but it's the nature of the game. And, and when you throw that in with the other things you're talking about, it just makes for a really tough time for folks. So I'm glad we're having this discussion. Absolutely. And I, I think that even when we recognize that, and it is, it's just a hard truth. I think that doesn't mean that we stop there, right? So you recognize that that's what it is. And then what can we do to change it? I think there are incredibly creative and intelligent folks within the orthopedic surgery sort of specialty. And I think collectively, you all could come up with some solutions and maybe have a shift in priorities. And sure, certainly, you know, money can be a driver, but health and well-being could potentially be more important than that. And how can we allow for our practice to reflect why it is that we decided to become PAs in the first place? That oath that we took, it didn't say that we were going to become PAs to make the most money or to be able to get reimbursed at the highest rate. It was because we wanted to provide care for everyone. And if what you're doing is not meeting that goal that you took your, you know, you raised your right hand to say that this is why we're doing it, then we need to do some critical reflection about that. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. It, you're hitting the nail on the head. I'm so glad we're having this discussion. You had talked about position of power just a second ago, and I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into some of the topics you had in your discussion. You talked about identities, i.e. how you identify yourself, age, sex, race, national origin, et cetera. And then you showed how these identities were demonstrated on a graph, and it was called the wheel of power. And this basically shows you which identities are associated with more power and influence in society. And it, 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 uh, that stuck with me. And then you ask the question, what ways have you leveraged your privilege and support of liberation within orthopedic surgery? That is such a tough question. We, we've talked about it some. Can you explain how or provide some examples of how we can work on it? How can we be more inclusive? How can we do a better self-reflection to be more inclusive, to treat people equally uh, or or to try to help those that need our help more? I think that oftentimes folks think about race, right? And I focus a lot on, on race because the racial disparities are just so incredibly heartbreaking and, and very explicit. But there are all of these other ways by which we identify ourselves as it relates to age, our ability status, religion, sexual orientation, city, how our gender identity, all of these components are incredibly important as we think about our identity. One of the most important questions here is how often do you think about it, right? There are certain identities that you may be forced to think about more so than others. And that is from a position of privilege. I give an example of my mom who has low vision. So that area of, I guess, disability, she thinks about that all the time because it impacts her on a daily, daily basis. 
there may be some of our identities that we don't think about because we just exist through life and we aren't forced to think about this, which is also a position of privilege. And I think just taking some time to sit back and grapple with that point. Oftentimes when you hear the word privilege or power, people will immediately get defensive, right? And think that there is, oh, well, you know, you're saying that I didn't have a hard life or that I didn't have to struggle. We have to let that go. That's not what that means. But the fact is, is that my mom has low vision through no fault of her own. I mean, because it literally was just this fluke. And I, I, my vision is 2020. I didn't do anything to earn that. It's just something that I have. And so just walking in that place of recognizing where you have positions of privilege, owning it and using it for good. And when when you talk about that question, that question hit me so strong when I went to a training. How are you using your positions of power or your position of privilege to help liberate others? Because I don't think that we think about it. I think we just walk through life and we try to do good by folks. But how do we actively leverage our positions of privilege to help free others? And we can go back to the example of Medicaid versus private insurance. Oftentimes people, and, and you have to do some, some, you know, you have to be honest and be authentic. Some folks think folks on Medicaid, you know, abusing the system, whatever it is, they may have some negative connotations around folks on Medicaid. The reality is that the majority of folks on Medicaid are the elderly and children. And those who are on Medicaid due to socioeconomic status, the poverty line is very, very low. I can't remember offhand. I think it's like 20,000 or lower if you're single. And so just even thinking about your socioeconomic status, an area of privilege is the fact that we all are credentialed. And so the fact that you are in the orthopedic surgical specialty or that we're PAs, we have a certain credential associated with that. What can we do with that credential, with our position, to really advocate on behalf of our Medicaid patients? What could we do? And I think there's a lot. There's a lot you could do. You advocate to your administrative staff. You hold sessions only for Medicaid patients. So looking through where you are, where is your position of influence, and how in looking at where folks are suffering, you know, my folks with Medicaid can't get an appointment. How can I use my position of privilege to change that and to close that gap? I want to give an example of me not trying to toot a horn or anything, but I do a charity clinic with our local community health center. And we do it once a week. And as folks with no money or, you know, some have Medicaid, but most have nothing. And I, I want people to understand when I say some folks have nothing, they literally don't have two coins to rub together. So, you know, we're treating these folks and, and our surgeons taking on that we will do surgeries when they're appropriate. And we try to do the best we can with that. And I'm more than happy to share how we do that at our practice with other folks. So if anybody's interested in outreach, how you can communicate with your community health center providers. I've taught workshops on how to do musculoskeletal injections. We have an advocacy program through the PAOS. There are lots of things that you can do. So don't listen to this and sit back. I would like people to listen to this and, and get motivated and say, hey, you know, we're PAs, let's do something. So I'm hoping that comes through. Johnny, there's so many things I want to talk to you about and questions to ask, and our time is short, but I, there's a lot of things I want to go over. So I do these clinics, and I'm always 
aware of a communication or a socioeconomic status or a perceived socioeconomic status affecting communications. What's a good way to be, you know, I, I'm just myself and I try to talk to folks, but I know there's, there's sometimes problems with communications because I'm right in the middle of the wheel of power. What can we do to improve that? How can we make our patients feel more at ease with us and understand what we're talking about? I think that's a great question. I think that so many folks just sort of walk through life and it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm me and if they get it, they get it, you know? And so it really comes to asking questions. I think that in PA school, when we learned how to do history taking, we learned about concepts such as motivational interviewing. We learned about sort of teach back techniques. And so it just really involves having conversations with your patients and asking, you know, all right, I just went through a whole spiel on how to take care of your knee after this operation. Now, tell me what you heard and to see whether or not there, you know, whether or not things made sense. If you don't ask, your patients won't say anything. I can think of an example where I went in with my grandmother when she was still alive to an appointment. She sat there because there is a culture there, right? So you are a physician or a physician assistant. You have your white coat on. My grandmother sits on table with her and there is this level of respect. There is this, I am not going to ask questions. I don't want to appear like I don't understand anything. So I'm not going to ask questions. She sat there. She smiled. The doc, or I think it was a doc at that time, said, do you have any questions? She said, no. And he walked away. We left that appointment and she said, Shani, now tell me what he said. So unless you ask, it can't be, do you have any questions? It's tell me again, just so I can make sure that we're on the same page. How are you going to take care of that knee? Or what is the follow-up and follow-through after this injury? Just so you can make sure that, that you understand. So that's where communication comes from. I think that that's where, how we can improve with communication. Now, one of the studies that I demonstrated specifically for orthopedic surgery was that there is a huge disconnect. When you're looking at this, there was a study looking at black and white patients. And Black patients on every single area scored lower than white patients as it relates to, you know, did you think your provider showed interest in you as a person? Did you feel encouraged to ask questions? Were your questions answered clearly? Black patients scored their encounter lower across the board. And I think that that's a, you know, you have to kind of look at that, like what's happening? What's happening? And I'm not saying that there is this intentional, you know, like folks look at Black people less than, but I do think that there are some biases that exist. And I think that we have to look at it and we have to be honest with ourselves about it. It's great information. Just treat people well. You're not the person dictating or giving out. You're, it's a team. And, you know, if you're not communicating with your patient, no matter who they are, but especially in folks that are in a, a less privileged position, you're not helping them. So make sure they understand what you're saying. Shawnee Fleming, thank you very much for your time and talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. I hope you can tune in next week. How do we promote a more inclusionary, diverse group of PAs in orthopedics and orthopedic surgery? How can we measure our progress?